Okay, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 13. We've been looking at the parables. I want to review those really briefly, but before I do that, I want to talk about something that I think is critical for understanding uh, the New Testament. We talk about the biblical worldview, and a lot of people think that the worldview that, uh, that is the biblical worldview is the worldview of Judaism or Christianity. That's actually not the biblical worldview. Uh, the worldview of the Bible is not the worldview of Jews or of Christians. Each of those worldviews and their subvariants, as you know they exist, are related to the biblical worldview and they overlap significantly with the biblical worldview. But the biblical worldview is in some sense unique. The biblical worldview is the worldview contained in the people, the children of Israel, who emerged and as they came about in a culture that had been created by God, uh, they were inspired to write uh, the scriptures. In other words, the biblical worldview is the worldview from which the scriptures were written. This is a combination of the context of the authors as part of that culture established by God, um, a specific language, a specific way of life, and a culture uh, through the covenants and through the commandments. And it is a product of the direct inspiration of the texts that they authored um, in that context so that they would be a light to the Gentiles. The biblical text, therefore, must be in, understood in that context and that worldview. So let me give you an analogy uh, that I'm kind of working on. We use uh, worldview, we talk about glasses through which people see the world. That's where the word worldview comes from. I think it's all of the senses, uh, but, but we'll stay with that one. So if you consider the biblical worldview is kind of a set of bifocals. Now, I wore bifocals for a long time. Then I got these. These are called progressives, so I guess they're democratic. But they're, um, they, uh, they kind of blur from one to the other. Uh, but when I had bifocals, there was a there was a line where I could see up close, and then I could see far. Uh, they gave me immediate uh, view, and they gave me a long-term view in that sense. Well, in that sense, uh, the prescription, that section that brings into focus that which is close, is the Torah. The Torah is the foundation of all that Israel is and will become. And then the distant focus is the prophets. Because the prophets both connected the present with the future. And they view the road ahead, which includes ultimately the kingdom of God. So in that sense, the glasses have a place for the immediate aspects of life in the Torah. And then the prophets give this future notion of the kingdom. They both criticize uh, the lack of doing what the Torah says and talk about its ultimate fulfillment. In the kingdom. The Newer Testament then must be read and interpreted within this perspective. Um, to read the Gospels and the Epistles independent of the Older Testament, or in my judgment, worse, as a guide and interpreter of the Older Testament, is to uh, fall into, I think, an error. Because what happens is the readers own worldview begins to usurp the worldview of the authors. 
in Christianity, this is very common. We commonly say you interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. And I believe we interpret the New Testament in context of the Old. The danger is that this leads to errors like replacement theology and this personal, hyper-individualistic salvation. Thinking that's the intent of the scriptures, and it is not. The writers of the New Testament books assume that their readers, be they Jews or Gentiles, were significantly familiar with the Bible of Jesus' day. And while they write in Greek, their mindset is based on the Hebrew uh, Torah and the prophets. I believe this is the underpinning of the statement that we looked at last week in Matthew 13, when Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. The new does not replace the old. It enhances and extends it. Therefore, it's critical for us to be reading through the scriptures. That systematic reading through the Torah will enhance your understanding of the Gospels. The half Torah and the prophets will assist in that. The, the apostles who were writing to us, writing primarily to their fellow Jewish believers and then these Gentiles who were beginning to attach to themselves to it. They, they assumed that their readers were familiar with the God of Abraham and the word of the Lord, which was the Hebrew scriptures. And so this notion of what they're writing is they're writing in that context. That's why often Paul will say, you who know the law, do you not hear the law? In other words, he's assuming that they know that. Often they use very small little uh, hyperlinks, if you will, little connections to something, assuming that you know that context. And so it's really important that we continue to reinforce that. So I'm going to stop with that. That's kind of my uh, postscript from last week. Uh, We'll stop and see if there are any questions on that. Otherwise, I... So um, we're continuing in the discussion of Matthew 13, and we have have finished with the parables. Uh, The parables give us a broad perspective of the kingdom of God, both now and in the future. And the response to the word of God being proclaimed, uh, the word of the kingdom, uh, is that some will not hear it. And then some will receive it with joy, and then they'll fall away because they don't like the persecution. And then some are more focused on the world and their needs of the world, and so they will not follow through. But there are those who will embrace it, who will take root, and will become fruitful, will grow to maturity, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Now, in the midst of that growth, there are going to be false uh, believers sown by the evil one. And so the, the parable of the tares tell us that they are there, but we are not to try to up, uproot them because in their early stages of development, the true believer and the tear are not easy to distinguish. It is only later in the fruitfulness of what comes out in their maturity that you will see that, and the angels will deal with that at the end of time at the kingdom. Then uh, 
Jesus tells us that the kingdom will grow from very small to very large. And it will affect the nations, but it also will be filled with this hypocrisy uh, leaven of pride that clearly we have seen in the history of uh, both Israel and the church. But it also, we are told in the parables, that the kingdom is so valuable that those who happen upon it will sell all that they have that they may get it, and those who are seeking it will do the same. In other words, it becomes the priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These other things will be added. Then we are told that when the kingdom is brought into place, like a net, God will sort out the righteous and the wicked, those who are the true believers and those who are not, and will make sure that his kingdom to, will be pure. It isn't now. If you're looking for a pure congregation, you're not going to find it. And if you found one and you entered it, it would no longer be pure, right? The issue is that we need to understand that at the present time, the kingdom is in a mixed condition, which is what these parables are telling us. But it will not stay that way when it comes into fullness uh, then it will be uh, it will be pure, and then Jesus gives that final statement that I just talked about. That therefore, someone who is instructed in the scriptures—that's what the scribes were—and who is a disciple of the kingdom will be one who takes the old and the new and brings them together. Not one replacing the other, but them being complementary and expanded. In that sense. And clearly that's what we want to be. As disciples. Those who have that kind of. uh, uh, Understanding of that which God has already done. And that which God is doing. Now it's in that context. That we move to. uh, Chapter. um, 13. Verse 53. But before we do that. I want to skip ahead in Matthew. And I want to uh, look at a text. That I'm going to use. Because we're focused towards that. But I want to use it now to kind of get you prepared for it. It's in Matthew 16, verse 13 to 17. It's a passage you know very well. Some of you may even have it memorized. Or you know it well enough that you could uh, almost give it verbatim. This is the place at Caesarea Philippi. Where Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They are looking back at the law and the prophets where God said, I will raise up a prophet like you, and the people shall listen to him. And so as the prophets would come forward, they often were not accepted, and then later people said, gee, they were prophets, right? Uh, But the idea was that this notion was that the Messiah, this one who would ultimately come, would be like those prophets. And so, of course, they are trying to guess. Same thing happened with John the Baptist, you recall. Some said, are you the one? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the, 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 uh, the, one, like, are you the one like Elijah? No, I'm not those. There's one coming after me, he would say. So, uh, Jesus said, then who do you say I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood 
did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now the reason I brought these verses up is I have entitled today's discussion, Getting Jesus Wrong. Uh, A lot of times people get Jesus wrong. I remember one time in a uh, congregation I was in that... uh, uh, one of the one of the deacons said something. I said something about Jesus that was basically from a text. It, it simply said that. I think it was the one where uh, uh, Jesus said, "John came, not eating or drinking, and you call him a nut. And the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you call him a wine bibber and a glutton." And this guy said, "My Jesus never drank." And I said, you have your very own Jesus? Now, a lot of Christians have their very own Jesus. They have Jesus as they want to see him and as he is, right? A lot of scholars do the same thing. But there really is only one Jesus, and it's the one revealed in the scriptures. And uh, that means that we have to stay close to the text, not stay close to our idealization uh, of him in that context. So... Uh, this idea of who is he is a problem and Matthew is going to let us know that even though he is right there and he is talking, people are not getting him right. They don't know what God is doing. They're missing the point. And the parables, in some sense, were to keep them in that condition. And so uh, I want you to take a look at these verses. We're going to pick up at 1353. Uh, When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. Of course, that's Nazareth. Uh, And they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all here with us? Where did this man get all these things? Now, you would almost expect that what's going on now is they're going to say, Wow, the Messiah is here and he came from our town. But that's not what happens. Look at the next verse. They took offense at him. They were stumbled. It's, this is the word is scandalous. This is the they were scandalized by him. They were embarrassed by him. They were uh, confused by it. this. Can't this can't be? And so Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household." And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. They saw Jesus up close, but they got him wrong. They didn't see what was going They didn't, they said, how can he have this wisdom in what he says? How can he have this miraculous power? Because after all, he's just one of us. And therefore, the very thing that those words and those miracles were expressing is not being seen. You remember when John got him wrong. John the Baptist. And he said, are you the one to come? Or is there another one? And Jesus said, tell John 
the blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended in me. And then, in other words, he gave him a quote from Isaiah so that, that John, who is quoting Isaiah about himself, would understand. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier. The more you know the scriptures and you let the scriptures tell you instead of your circumstances tell you, the more you are going to see what God is doing and understand. Otherwise, you're going to be what the Isaiah curse is, seeing you will not perceive and hearing you will not understand. They were there, he is in plain sight, and they got him wrong. So one of the things that's really important for us is to realize that in our context, we're even more likely to do that. That the Lord works among us. And we have a tendency to say, well, it's not the Lord because it's this one or that one, right? The reality is, the Lord does what He's doing and our job is to know the Scriptures well enough that we see the hand of the Lord in what's going on. We tend not to do that and so we tend then to let somebody do something and then we listen to what they say. No, let the thing happen and listen to what God says about it. It's discernment. Uh, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says that we are to, uh, that these things are spiritually discerned. The natural man does not receive the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. So that's really important. So this first one is the idea that Jesus was a noted prophet. Prophet, he's honored, but he's not going to be honored in his hometown and even in his own household. There is a time when Jesus' own family, and they know the story, his own family are going to think he's kind of gone off the deep end. And so uh, it's, it's easy for us to miss what God's doing because we're not paying attention to the text. We're, we're trying to interpret the circumstances ourselves. So I'm going to stop there and see if there are any comments or uh, thoughts or questions. So we're going to move then into, well, let me say based on verse 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now that's sometimes interpreted as Jesus couldn't, couldn't do miracles because they didn't believe in him. Okay? I, I, if you have that in your head, you get that out of your head. Okay? Every time Jesus said to his disciples... O ye of little faith. Every time except once. One time he said it in a sermon. But every time he said that in the Gospels, he works a miracle. In other words, his complaint is, so I have to show you something? Okay, here it is. Not because they have faith, but because they didn't have faith. Right? The reason that there were not miracles going on in his hometown is... They didn't bring the sick to him. They didn't ask him for anything. You have not because you ask not, right? They, they simply said, it's just Jesus, he's home from his preaching tour. Uh, you know, well, isn't that nice? 
instead of saying, I've heard these stories. If he can heal them, he can heal Uncle Charlie, right? Or Uncle Mordecai, right? We'll bring him in, right? But they didn't do that. They simply treated him as, well, we know who he is. So really important verse, uh, but it's important that we see it as it is. Now, we're going to see someone else who gets Jesus wrong. So we've had the common people, the people in his village who don't, don't get him right. Now we're going to get the elites who don't get him right. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the, uh, the news about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And that is why the miracle powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. And when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised uh, an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of the dinner guests. Clearly the fear of man. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported this to Jesus. Now I want you to catch, Matthew is telling us that Herod also doesn't get Jesus. He's got Jesus wrong. He hears the reports. This Jesus is healing the blind, he's healing the sick, He's doing all of this stuff. And Herod goes, not let us, let us go to him and hear this man of God. He's already had a man of God who talked to him. He didn't like the message. And so he ends up dead. Right? So his fear is John the Baptist is risen. And that's what's going on. Okay? His guilt is blurring his ability to see who Jesus is. I think sometimes our guilt causes us to blur who Jesus is. We don't see him as that much of a forgiver because we carry too much guilt. He's not that much of a provider because we're unable to see how he can do it. I mean, I do think that those, these kinds of things happen. So what we have here is another case where the, the look is... They're very aware that he's doing miracles. They're very aware of what he's teaching, but they're interpreting it wrong. They're interpreting it based on local circumstances and the present and not on the text. I want to reinforce that for you. If they would listen to the text, they would have known what was going on. But they were not listening to the text, even though they knew the text. They were trying to interpret Jesus in the context of their circumstances. One group, their home village, he's just one of us. And Herod, oh, he's one of those prophet guys, and that's a problem, and now he's coming back. In other words, in both cases, they're using the circumstances to explain what's going on and not using the biblical text. So, I think it's important that we see life through the lens of the scriptures. 
Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is critical that we understand how this works. So I want to uh, go to that text that I previously just mentioned briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Well, verse 10. God has revealed these things through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God. These things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts <coughs> with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one, understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? No one. But we have the mind of Christ. Now what Paul's telling us is, in some sense, the word by itself is not going to work either. Because the natural man can read the scriptures and come to very bizarre conclusions. I am always reading books by scholars. There's two kinds of scholars. There are scholars who are disciples of the Lord. And there are academics who are scholars of the, of the Hebrew scriptures or the Christian scriptures. In other words, one group believes in God and is studying the word from that perspective. The other group doesn't really believe in God, but they find the scriptures fascinating. The conclusions that many of these scholars come to are simply bizarre as they try to twist the biblical text into everyday circumstances. But those who see God through the lens of the scriptures, believing that they were inspired by God and wait on the spirit of God to illuminate that, the word without the spirit is dead and the spirit without the word is nonsense. And so together they give us this discernment that we are supposed to get. I had a phone call from a friend of mine. Uh, he, was a, he was in Vietnam and uh, went through that Agent Orange stuff and now has uh, uh, cancer in his lungs. He's waiting to see what the, the result is and what they're going to do. And when he was there, there was a, uh, he was at the, the VA, there was a, a doctor uh, or a nurse or, or someone, some woman that came to talk to him in this context. And she says, I just can't believe in God because if God was around, this world, why is this world uh, so bad? And he says, you're not looking at this right. This world is under control of Satan. The kingdom to come is what God's going to take over. And in this life, there is an enormous amount that God is not doing, Satan is doing. 
But his time will run out. And when his time runs out, the glory of the Lord will be seen in all of this. So there is nothing about these things. You can almost hear Romans 8. There is nothing in these things that can separate us from the love of God. Because ultimately, we're going to win. We've read the end of the book. It's what he told her. She says, I just don't think that way. Well, the difference was she was thinking through the circumstances and he was thinking through the word. And that really is the difference. We need to be so absorbed with the word that we are transformed. I want to give you an example that I don't know will help with anybody, but it came to my mind and now if I don't say it, I won't get it out of my head. When I was uh, young, they came out with this stuff called Silly Putty. Any of you know? Okay, good. All right. Silly Putty was this clay-like thing. And one of the things that it had, one of the properties it had was you could take the Silly Putty and you could put it on a page and you could push it down. And when you peeled it off, you could see the printing. Right? So I got to thinking about that when I started hanging around church. And I thought, that's, that's the example. We're the silly putty. And we need the word on us. And what I found is, what happens is, you get the word in there, and there it is. And then as you manipulate it, it goes away. Then you have to do it again. And what I thought was, what I need to do is press myself into every page of the Bible and get that thing inside me that it will transform me. But the word can't do that without the spirit. And we are really silly putty Because that word doesn't stay in us. We have to commit our minds to God's word. We have to memorize it. We have to be thinking of it. I've told you this before. I'm going to say it again. I have hours and hours and hours of 50s and 60s rock and roll in my head. I can sing along with them. I I know the chord progressions. All of that part is in my head. And so it is very easy for me to have anything cause me to think of those songs. And so all somebody says is, I was walking down the street and I hear singing doo-wah, diddy, diddy, dum, diddy, do. Right? Uh, uh, I've got marezy dotes, dozy dotes, and a little lambsy divey going through my head whenever somebody says something that sounds like that. Because I have committed that to memory in those early years. If I had committed the word of God to memory earlier, then I would think more in those terms. And I do find that the more I am uh, immersed in the word of God, the more I see things and the word of God echoes in my mind that gives me discernment. And that's what we need to be doing. If we don't, we're going to get Jesus, but we're going to get him wrong. So we're going to stop at that point. If there are any questions, comments, or thoughts. I told Israel, I want you to make tzitzit. Are we? Okay. I want you to make these tzitzit, right? What are these for? Because you forget. You have my word, but you forget it. Now, there are two ways to forget it. One is to forget it at the time, right? I know it, but I'm ignoring it. And the other is to lose it altogether. I believe that we have a capacity to be uh, 
ignorant of the scriptures even though we know them. Because we simply are in the moment. But I also think that if we don't rehearse the scriptures over and over, we lose them. I've got some verses that I've memorized that I can go right to them immediately. I've got some others that I haven't rehearsed them in a while and I kind of struggle with them. So that's what I'm talking about. It's simply a product of our minds. We, we tend to, to lose it. Now, one of the reasons I believe we need to get children memorizing scripture. Um, and some of you have had the same experience. If you've spent time with people who begin to show signs of dementia. It is not the current time that they retain. They begin to regress back to earlier times. And if those earlier times are filled with the scriptures, I've heard people who become very... I mean, I've almost seen personality changes where they go back and they're quoting scripture all the time, whereas before they were telling me the same story all the time, that that looping kind of thing, right? Uh, And I I think that we want to get the scriptures into us as soon as possible, as much as possible, and we want to reinforce it uh, all all of our life. uh, God told the king of Israel to write the Torah and to read it every day of his life. And you could say, well, I read it. But you know as well as I do that you read something and all of a sudden it hits you in a way that you didn't, you didn't see it. So I think that all of those things are part of that. Uh, we tend to be um, forgetful. We, we just are. And forgetting the truth is not a good thing. Okay, so the question is, Paul talks about spirit and the spirit, and in the NASB and some Bibles, there's the small s and the big s, right? So what, what's going on here? We have, a, we have an inner man and an outer man. The outer man is our body, and the inner man is our spirit, mind, whatever that, that process is. The scripture uses multiple words for that, uh, what Paul calls the inner man. Here he's talking about that. Who really knows the thoughts of a person, but that person himself in his spirit? That's the small s. In the same way, Paul says, no one knows the thoughts of God, but God's spirit. That's the big S. And Paul's arguing that we have been given that big S spirit who comes into our life, comes into us. And therefore, we have the mind of Christ, the illumination of that spirit, when we're reading the text that was originally inspired by the spirit. So, uh, if you are a believer, you have you, the little s, and the Holy Spirit, the big s, or in Hebrew would be the big resh, ruach, right? So, whatever that you want to do with that, together. And that's why Paul is saying we speak a wisdom that the world doesn't know. Because the spirit that inspired these texts is in us to illuminate us. That's the word that theologians use. The illumination of the spirit. The one who wrote it, the author, the inspirer of it, is also illuminating us as we read it. Now, not individually. Us communally. That's why it's important 
for us to understand the conversations that have been made before by the rabbis and the church fathers. Though we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks when we get to the problem of tradition overriding the scriptures, Jesus warns us very seriously about that. You know, when you bring a baby home, they are not blank slates. There's a critter in there, right? And it's trying to work its way out, right? And that critter, that, I mean, what does the scripture say? He formed us from the dust of the ground. That's the outer man. Breathed into us the breath of life. Breath there is the word spirit, right? So we are breathing dirt. There's a spirit, a life in us, and there is the body. But those of us who have been born again have also the Spirit of God somehow dwelling in us. I don't even pretend to understand how that works. But that it works, I'm convinced. I'll give you two responses to that. Okay, First, I'll give you the Jewish one. I'll give you the Christian one. I think they both address it incompletely, so I like both of them. Judaism believes that we have... A built into us because we were created in the image of God but we also have the flesh we have a Yetzer Hara and a Yetzer Hatov it's an urge to do good and an urge to do evil so it's like the little devil and angel on your shoulder telling you what to do right so Judaism says that so what they would say is that even those who are not uh, believers have some part of that that urge towards good that was built into us at creation. Okay? Christians would say, following Paul, that when those Gentiles, Jews versus Gentiles, Jews have the knowledge, Gentiles don't is the context that he says, when those Gentiles do by nature what is written in the scriptures, they are a demonstration that those commandments are written on their hearts. And Paul says, if they're doing better than you are, and you're the Jew who knows it, uh, won't theirs be considered righteousness, and yours be considered unrighteousness. So I think that what Paul is saying is that there is a capacity, it's kind of like the Jews, there's a capacity for even unbelievers to do good things. That's the residue of us being created in the image of God. Can we be good sufficiently for salvation, no. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. And therefore, we need the rebirth of the Spirit with the big S. Right? So, yeah. Language, the word soul, is what people mean by the inner, inner man. But the Bible doesn't use the word soul that way. The word nefesh and the word suke, which is where we get our word psychology, that is translated life or soul, means the whole person. So we don't have a soul, we are a soul. But in Christian theology, they took that inner part and said that's the soul. That gets saved. But see, that creates an error. Because then my soul got saved, but what about my body? But the resurrection is my body is going to be saved too, right? He's going to save my whole soul. So uh, in a little bit, this is technical language. So you could say it that way. As long as you understand that when the Bible uses the word soul, it's usually talking about the whole person. It's not talking about a part of you, right? 
Uh, although you do have two soles. They're at the bottom of your feet. That's, yeah. So that's the problem of, of language, right? So, all right, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to say them and uh, replace the script.